This is Coda Radio, episode 529 for August 1st, 2023. Hello, friend. Welcome into Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and the business of software development and the world of technology. My name is Chris, and joining us, ready to go, it's our host, Mr. Dominic. Hello, Mike. Hello, Chris. Hey, handsome. It's nice to be with you. Another Tuesday episode. Another for us. Tuesday. And I, uh, I was reviewing the news, and you saw this story too. And I just, I couldn't help but laugh when I saw that uh, the White House commissioned the FBI to investigate why the U.S. government was using malware that's on like the the no no list. And so they commissioned the FBI to say, look into this. And uh, it just reminds me of those times where it's like, oh, no, we're the baddies. The FBI comes back and says, oh, actually, it was us. <laughs> Very <laughs> Scooby-Doo. It was me yeah. the whole time. <laughs> they reveal the mask. Yeah. Uh, it's, oh. it's, you know, it, and then their excuse was they got duped. Right. They're like, they tricked us. Have you had a situation like this where, like, you're working with a subcontractor? Because that's what happened with the FBI. They were they subcontracted this job that they're claiming that subcontractor, Rivia Networks made the purchase and made the exchange and then delivered it to the FBI and the FBI just took it and used it. Have you had something like that where like a subcontractor gave you something, but turns out it was like GPL code or it was like not, not good. Or like I can kind of understand a little bit. No, not like this. I mean, it's like this subcontractor thing. Like they cause they subcontract out everything now. <laughs> I don't know. Not like this. This, this feels very like, we hired the subcontractor because we want deniability.com. Yeah, there's a lot yeah. of that. Right. Mm-hmm. We didn't break the law. Yeah. That's just good business these days. Rivia, I believe, from the great garden state of New Jersey, where there are a bunch of shady subcontractors. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. What is really the, the meta story underneath this is this robust and continuing to accrue in value marketplace for malware, zero-day exploits, and bugs of from all known types of software that have any measurable user base. And I've covered this over a decade, probably for 13, 14 years, starting with TechSnap, and watched this grow into like a, starting just with a few websites using forums on Tor, to now there's like functional marketplace software to do like reviews on the yep. uh, malware contributors and like, Amazon style purchases, you know, buy it now and get access. There's escrow services and it's and and our own fed, and all the other world governments are directly contributing to the value going skyrocket on this malware because they just keep paying whatever it takes to get access. It's good, right? Nothing could nothing. nothing yeah, it's you know, it's I mean, it's great. This stuff has existed for a long time. It's certainly gotten bigger. I think mostly because of mobile phones and just the, you know, deep, deep well of data that exists on your phone is something that's uh, pretty, pretty difficult to resist for a lot of these governments and government entities. But yeah, I mean, you know, the NSO group was blacklisted for some questionable business practices, uh, but they apparently make some pretty spicy malware. So sure. And so the, you know, the, the federal government, goes to the bother of creating this official, you know, no-fly list for malware and malware groups. And then to avoid it, they just hire the subcontractor. The subcontractor goes and makes the purchase. They're not restricted by the federal do-not-buy list, and the FBI just works around it. 
<laughs> right. That's the that's the like cynical like they did it on purpose. I, well, that is what happened. That's how they do it all the time. I mean, it it's standard operating procedure. It does feel that way. Yeah. Right. That's like when the FBI wanted to crack that dude in Florida's phone, the the uh, guy, the terrorist who blew up the nightclub. Yep. They just like went to some Israeli firm. They were going to buy the software. Yeah. I want to get into a broader discussion about APIs also, and we'll get into the information some of those APIs are revealing and some of the new rules Apple has around that. But I thought I thought we'd start with a, a story that Wes found on Hacker News from about seven years ago. Uh, the author says, I was in a meeting with a former Windows Core graphics engineer. My team was attempting to figure out some extremely obtuse workflows with Media Foundation and DirectX. We had a meeting with this guy and a couple of other engineers that wrote the APIs and the implementation underneath. This particular guy literally started to chuckle as we aired our frustrations. And this was his response. Quote, yeah, you won't figure those APIs out from documentation. It was on purpose. You have to go buy the book. He then proceeded to explain to me that this is how he and many other core Windows engineers lined their pockets for years. They would write complex implementations, do the absolute bare minimum documentation, and then take a six-month sabbatical to publish a reference book that was absolutely required to actually use the API. Apparently, many of these guys made 10 to 20x their salaries on this grift, and it really didn't stop until recently in the mid-2000s. Oh, Lord, if this is real, this is like... <laughs> you know, I I remember this being a conspiracy theory back in the day. This is an older one, yeah. Yeah, I, it, this... But I, I wanted to read that because we're going to discuss a couple of different large vendor API changes this week. And I thought it was interesting to dip back into the late 90s and the early aughts and realize that screwing around with the API is nothing new. It's just they have a lot more control now. And back then, Windows was king, right? So it really mattered. Mm. <laughs> it's just incredible. As all my, I knew those guys were screwing us back in the day. I knew it. We literally because this is really pre-Google too, because I'm an old man, we literally would take monthly trips. Like part of the IT team would take monthly trips to the Barnes and Noble or whatever bookstore it was. And we would pick out, like I'd get a Linux book. The guy doing Windows dev would get like the latest Windows. Like it was like the Windows 2000 in progress book. Like it was a monthly thing we had to do. And we had a budget in the entire like IT yearly budget. We had a big old carve out so we could go buy books <laughs> and we had all the shelves and everything because it was just the only way to get the information. And then, you know, over time it finally went online. Hey, I want to thank our members, coderqa.co. You get a limit or you get a no ad now version of the show as a, as a feed option, but really you're supporting the program, keeping the coder radio program on the air during the ad winter, which is right now we are smack dab in the middle of it. CoderQA.co, you also get access to the Coderly every quarter and all of the previous episodes. And also, thank you to everybody who supports the show each episode with a boost. We really appreciate those boosts and the messages. Every bit of your boost goes some goes to some use, either by bringing liquidity to the rest of the network. It contributes directly to Editor Drew and some podcasting 2.0 developers as well as the Podcast Index. You can boost in by getting Alby, getalby.com. That's a browser extension. You top it off either in the extension or with something like the Cash App if you have that already. Then you go to the Podcast Index. When you find the Coda Radio entry in the Podcast Index, which I got linked in the show notes, you can just boost right there from the web. But if you want to try out a new podcast app, there's some cool features in there like transcripts and cloud chapters and live item support and, of course, boosts and a lot more. 
That's all in there to it. Podcastapps.com or newpodcastapps.com. Podverse is really great. It's GPL. It's cross-platform. Fountain streams you sats as you listen. And Castomatic is focused on iOS. And there's a lot more. Newpodcastapps.com. And your boost will be coming up later in the show. So let's talk about this change. Apple quietly announced it at WWDC. And it is now going into effect. And the App Store is going to have to require, or will require, I should say, developers to disclose and describe and essentially plead for access to what used to be just publicly available APIs on iOS. And there's several in here. Some of them make a lot of sense. You know, some of them for privacy reasons, I think it's obvious why Apple is blocking some of these APIs, like more precise battery information, things that you could kind of derive as an advertiser to try to fingerprint somebody. A lot of those APIs are getting cut off unless you implicitly describe and plead to get access to them. But the one that really seems to be getting under almost all iOS developers, I guess, collar, I don't know, bonnet, is access to the user defaults API, which is a big one, right? Because this is a lot of the user's general defaults that they might set in the central phone settings, like maybe dark mode, low power mode, uh, things that would need to be default across all apps. So you can imagine how many apps check the user defaults API. You want to inherit the user's settings. You want to respect their wishes. You want to make the app fit in with their system. And it is legitimately a side channel for information um, because, you know, there's, there is information in that API that you could use to essentially fingerprint a user. But I don't know, Mike. I mean, like, I don't know if you've seen this form. It's built into the latest version of Xcode now. And you just basically, in some cases, it's just a, a, a freaking blob text field. And you just got to, like, write out the APIs you're using and explanations and justifications. And you got to submit it now. Yeah, there's a lot here, right? Like, okay, the anti-ad fingerprinting stuff. I mean, they've been kicking the crap out of, let's call it Facebook, for a long time with this now with the app tracking stuff. Uh, but the user defaults is is kind of a, a, a weird one to me, especially because it seems to extend to your app's own user defaults, which a very common, like, quick and dirty, simple way especially for more corporate-ish apps that aren't, you know, like big, massive, you know, social media platforms, is to, like, temporarily write, like, an expiry and a, you know, a whatever, an auth token or something to the app's user defaults, if you're, especially if you're not using core data, like you're not using a local database. Um, and just to write, like, really basic, like, the specific settings to your app that the user has bookmarked into the user defaults. And that stuff is specific to your app, right? So that that seems like a really weird place to draw the line. And the implementation isn't necessarily a technical one, at least yet, right? It's I'm, I assume that they, an app review, they have the ability to check the APIs you do use. And if you use an API that you didn't disclose, they would block it and reject and then kick it back to you to explain it. You write an explanation, and then when they get it to a chance to review it again, they'd probably approve it. But... I mean, we can think of probably a dozen examples, but Uber's the most prominent, largest one where they just embedded hidden features in the app that could enable themselves later on based on geolocation or famously disable themselves based on like being at the Apple campus. And 
you know, then that API wouldn't get a ping. There's no, there's no technical block here. It's a, don't do it. And if you are going to do it, tell us why. And then if it matches, we'll, we'll, and we see your app doing it, we'll allow it. But it's, it's more of a social policy implementation, which doesn't feel like it's really going to be that robust in protecting against aggressive advertise, advertising tracking, which is already gross and crosses the line in a dozen different ways or a hundred different ways. It is. I mean, I just feel like the the level of pain in the butt, like secretarial work that has to be done to submit an app now. Yeah, there's that too. Is going exponentially higher. And like I, I could see- And it's on the developer, right? It's kind of, I mean, if it's in Xcode- yeah, it's on the developer, and it's yeah. also as the, these new thing comes out, there's always misunderstandings or misinterpretations uh, of the intention of the rule, and this just seems like a nightmare of, you know, cu- customer's app gets rejected because, I don't know, you saved an expiry token for when they'd have to reauthenticate, right? Like you saved like a timestamp in user default. I don't know. I don't know that they would go that far. I, I reread the uh, document that they put out right before we got on the air it's not clear if it's only like you know the system default user defaults or your apps too and the fact that that is not explicitly stated anywhere I yeah can they gotta clear find that it up. yeah makes me think that it really is going to depend on which user which uh reviewer you get i mean i imagine they've also they've got some policy in some system because they warned they kind of Low key said this was coming to WWDC, so they've probably been building some sort of back end policy. But I think I, I do want to give air to the argument that this this user defaults API in particular. There's others that are all of them, really a lot of them now that have to have explanation. But this yeah, one there's, seems there's, there's a ton that require explanation now. This one seems the user defaults one seems like it is a source of side channel leaks, like um, possibly number of photos on the device. Uh, maybe even in some circumstances, phone number, email address, your real name, recent photo searches potentially well, could be leaked com- that way. Compared to the stuff they blocked with the ask to track thing, this is like nothing, right? This is them going down the list of data uh, sources. Yeah, they're yeah. They, I just think it needs a technical solution, not a not a policy solution. Well, I almost think it should be two APIs, right? The so so you know in the bad Objective C day it was NS user defaults, which is literally the same, and. You know, the, there there ought to be maybe it should be like system defaults is like the one that has the general device information, and like that you need an excuse for. But saving an individual user users uh, preferences that are relevant to your app itself, and having to go through this mother may I process, right? It's just every time you have a mother may I with them you get the chance that you get the grumpy app review person that just rejects you and you have that yep. whole... Oh, man. It's more process. It, uh, I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but it just get, I'm getting upset. It's more process. It's more chance for them to reject you. It's just like the opposite direction we wanted this to go. Like, this isn't... And this applies to iPad OS. This isn't how you get the iPad Pro into a workstation. Well, this tablet. is another step away from it. Exactly. Right. Yeah, it's... Uh... Frustrating. And And typical. Yeah, it's it's not. I mean, it is somewhat admirable to have this focus on privacy, but there is going to come a point where limiting these APIs so much and requiring so many hoops and permissions really hampers the system, in particular the iPad Pro. Which, yeah, I mean, this is the question I have to the audience. I boost in with this: uh, 
is privacy before developer convenience the the right balance here? Do we ha- are are we off on this, or do you have a better solution? Is Mike's solution the correct one? Maybe two sets of APIs. I'd like to know what you think, boosting with that. But let's talk about another API. Google's calling it the Web Integrity API. You've probably heard about it by now because it's getting a lot of discussion online. I should say up front, this is so early that it's not even on an official Google property. It is labeled as a proposal. It's on a developer's personal GitHub. However, they are building the feature into Chrome right now for testing. So, yeah, yeah. But it's, so it's called the Web Integrity API, and they're kind of creating an authentication DRM for the web. They want to be able to discriminate between users and bots. They want to make sure that people that are viewing ads are legitimate individuals. They want to be able to say, deliver DRM to game and, and verify that you're not using any kind of cheat system. And obviously, if you don't meet certain requirements, the same API could be used, and it's all described in the documentation could be used to block users from accessing websites particularly like they look like they're saying they're speaking about this generally but in their diagrams and in the documentation it's clear that this would be something they would use at google like through the authentication process that if you know you didn't pass this validation that you wouldn't be able to authenticate it could also do things to make sure like that a device hasn't been rooted and then you know block access on there uh here's a quote perhaps the most telling line of the explainer is that quote takes inspiration from existing native attestation signals such as Apple's app attest and the Android Play Integrity API, end quote. Um, That is the API that lets apps find out if your device has been rooted. They say that um, perhaps during a transaction on a purchase or on a web page, this system could be used to pass uh, an environmental attestation test before you got any of the critical merchant data. And the authors feel, quote, strongly that the API shouldn't be used to uniquely uniquely fingerprint people, but say that they, quote, also want some indicator enabling rate limiting against a physical device. So they need some kind of way to identify people. They haven't gone public big with it yet, but they are building into Chrome. It's essentially creating a DRM framework for the web. The API would be collecting information about your device that makes it unique to identify that you're not a bot, that you're a real human, and then it would be storing that information and it's own little way. And obviously this API would be used to block, say, rooted devices. I don't know if maybe if I say I use a, a fork of Chrome, of Chromium that didn't have this, I probably wouldn't be able to log into the website. And Google isn't really being all that clear about how this API will be used, but the incentive here is obvious. They're an ad tracking company and they make their revenue from ads. And that's exactly where I was going to go to further guarantee that your ads are being read by people. Right. It's the same thing Elon's doing with Twitter slash X with the blue checks is you are a more juicy sell to the advertisers because they've verified your identity. You're a real person with payment information on file. So therefore you are actually a more expensive advertiser target. And so you're a premium product. Those CPM rates up. Yep. And that's what Google wants to do here, but for everyone on the web, you know, I, I don't know that this, this is going to be something that I think lives in Chrome. Yeah. It doesn't really go anywhere else. Well, good thing Chrome is huge. Yeah. Huge, huge. And I mean, sure, maybe maybe Microsoft pulls it out of edge. Honestly, if if this was needed to log into Google Ads, to Google AdWords, or if this was needed to log into the YouTube creator dashboard to get your payments, or if this was needed to log in to manage your Google Fi account, or if this was needed to log in to manage your Google business admin account, mm. how does Microsoft not include it? 
in Edge. Google could really force this by just putting it on the Google properties initially. But would they? I mean... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think this is exactly why they're building it. Oof, that would be... Again, it, it's very interesting how Apple and Google are coming at these platform control issues, and Google just seems like the jealous little brother, right? Like, well, this be... is their solution to uh, ad track blocking, all this cookie stuff, where they've lost their ability to track users across domains. Now what they need, and this is how they basically said it, is they just need to build that functionality into Chrome, because then they can't get it can't get taken away from them. They didn't say it in so many words, but I'm I bear I'm basically paraphrasing. Yeah, oh, they want that. They want that digital fingerprint so bad. This is becoming such a thing. It feels like we're seeing, like I said, Twitter doing this. We're seeing Google go at this. We're seeing Apple go at this. This trying to. We're seeing, of course, Worldcoin now launched. Uh, it's just this trying to make sure everybody isn't a bot before it's even a problem. I mean, yeah, there's lots of crappy bots now, but that's just it's just not worth all this. Uh, this feels like Google's going to probably move ahead with it and just it's one of those things. Maybe Chrome has it. Maybe Edge gets it. I doubt we're going to see it land in Firefox, but who knows? Put a link in the show notes. The Web Integrity API. I'd also like to hear people boosting with their thoughts on that because um, this is sort of the nightmare scenario of Google getting a lot of market share with Chrome. This is, I mean, at this point, worse than anything Microsoft ever did with Internet Explorer. No. <laughs> I mean, they're not breaking your your site that you have to. Impl- although there are, mm, ooh, they're getting there. There. Well, and the you know the the restrictions and implications of this, right? If, if uh, so, I'm on Graphene OS, right? And uh, it's not a rooted device, but it's not genuine Android. Uh, how is that? How would that react with this new system? I don't know. Well, that would be up to Google, right? That'd really I mean, suck. You know, or what if I'm on? What if I'm on my box as root? I mean, I just, I, I wouldn't be using Chrome. But, you know, my point is, it's like they're going to start, they're going to start forcing behavior and limiting the way people can use software through the system. And it it's one thing when it's Google's properties, but it's a whole other thing when they start preventing rooted devices. Because, you know, some of these Android devices are hostile from the manufacturer. They're loaded with crap. Mm-hmm. And... A great way to prevent e-waste is to be able to take some of these devices that are a little bit older and put lineage on them and get updates for like another five years. There's nothing unethical about that. And yet that might fail a system like this. Yeah. I mean, we'll have to see how long it takes to roll this out and does it does it leave the Chrome world? Yeah. Tailscale.com slash coder. Go on over there right now to get 100 devices for free on a personal account. And unlimited subnets. That means you can get into places where you can't even install the Tailscale client. So what is Tailscale? Well, it's a simple, secure mesh network for any device, for any team or person or company at any scale. It is indeed a zero-config VPN that you can get up and running in just minutes. And you don't have to, for like a business, have big, clunky hardware that you have to manage with complicated software. Tailscale is also perfect for those independent developers that want to set up some ad hoc networking or for those of us that have a little bit of a home lab and we don't want to expose things to the internet. It's also useful for businesses that want to give out VPN access and you want to use something modern that's also very cost-effective and, of course, something that's safe because all of it's built on top of WireGuard. Devices connect directly to each other using WireGuard's noise protocol encryption. Builds you a mesh network and it's the best VPN tech in the biz. 
You can quickly and easily create a network between your servers, your computers, your mobile devices, your VPSs, your laptops. I mean, really, pretty much everything. It doesn't matter if they're separated by firewalls, subnets, or even the dreaded double carrier net. I can attest, I've tried it all, and Tailscale just works. And there's a lot of nice tooling built in around Tailscale and a ton of great documentation. I'm going to point you over to the Tailscale blog, tailscale.dev. They have a post that went live on July 7th that walks you through putting Tailscale on a headless Raspberry Pi so it boots up onto your tailnet on its first boot. So you can SSH in and start configuring it and build a dev environment, get it set up for some hosting without ever having to connect a display port. It, from the first boot, goes onto your tailnet. There's so many nice things like that, including plugins for VS Code, layers for Docker, and it just goes on and on. So go try it. You get it for free for up to 100 devices on a personal account, and it's a great way to support the show. It's real easy. You just start by going to tailscale.com slash coder. That's tailscale.com slash coder. An interesting piece by, uh, I'm not going to be able to get his name right, so I'll put a link in the show notes, but he's an author and a software developer, kind of a public AI skeptic. And he's got a general idea that sort of jives with our thesis, but he just takes it a little bit differently. He says, the tech bubble, the one that kept getting inflated over the past 16 years with low interest rates, non-existent antitrust regulation, and a legal environment for tech, in the U.S. at least, that effectively has been a free-for-all, is now over. The incestuous startup ecosystem that largely consisted of overfunded bullshit companies buying services from each other is done. The tide is going out and people are slowly realizing that the only companies that make real money in tech are monopolist or quasi-monopolist. A majority of the value created by modern software ultimately comes from free and open source software. The extractive dynamic between a tech company and a financially dependent open source project has become incredibly common. This is getting worse because the easy money has stopped. There's a transition that's taking place in free software because there's less money floating around with the tech industry retrenching. And in many cases, that means they're either not funding free and open source software anymore or they're ramping up their attempts to extract value from the community. Companies are investing less in floss and want to make more of the value created. Then he goes on to point out that this is getting even worse with the increased popularity of language models and software development, writing that they are blatant strip mining FOSS code and that it's likely going to have the effect of deflating the size of these free open source communities. Why even use or contribute to an open source project when you can get a language model that's been trained on that project to rehash it and inject it into your code? Why give credit to the lines of code you've adapted to your own project when you can get a language model to whitewash it and claim it as your own? To me, it feels a bit like the relationship between the industry and floss communities has switched from being somewhat productive and occasionally abusive to outright looting. Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with the first, you know, three quarters of this, right? That it's really not necessarily just about open source or free software. It's about all software, right? We, how many times have we done an episode where we're just lamenting the dead indie firms and the dead, you know, mid-sized firms? It's a... Uh, there was a class of startups that were kept alive by drunk, easy money. And that drunk, easy money has gone. And it turns out the people making software are really the ones who are commoditizing everybody out of the business, right? Apple, Google, Microsoft to a point. So what do you think of his argument that the large language models are basically strip mining free software, whitewashing the code and making it so you don't have to give credit, you don't have to contribute back upstream, and it's going to thin out the free software community? 
I think this is one of the things that in terms of thinning out the community, it's the first part about funding that is actually more damaging. And I really think this whole pearl clutching about how these large language models, you know, like Copilot, whatever, are going to like destroy FOSS is, I think it's just nonsense. I think it's overstated. There, it's a small subset of the general tech community, the general software community. It's extremely passionate, extremely loud. It gets very, very upset. You know, they would die for the GPL. I get it. But the reality is it's, it, it's, it's, it's just one of the many cases where I think all this LLM stuff is over overstated. Yeah, it's part of this freak out. Uh, on the pre-show on the live stream, I played this whistleblowers against AI bias, and it was so ludicrous on its face. And this also plays into that. And you got to remember this co-pilot stuff, it's iterative, right? We need humans to create the new code to train this stuff. There's always going to be new code required, new solutions. And the large language models, as time goes on, will be just looked at more and more as useful toys. But I think their, our initial assessment that they're, you know, 2023's version of Clippy, while maybe a bit glib and, and uh, cynical, is essentially accurate. And all the panic about jobs and, and whatnot, while justified on the long term, not coming today or tomorrow, at least not from chat GPT. And I don't think it is going to clear out the FOSS community. If anything, when you create tools that make it easier for new people to participate and to have a starting point, you're going to bring more people in, right? Somebody like myself might use a large language model to just get myself started and just to begin practicing or just trying to create a basic patch that gets the idea across that the maintainer could write, you know, in, the, in their sleep and in much better. And they can, you know, see what I'm trying to get across and then go from there. It's a tool that is actually making it more accessible to more people to participate in free software. Ultimately, that's what its impact is going to be, in my opinion. So this other story today, I fried some bacon last week that I thought this was all just a publicity stunt, but and I didn't make it a prediction, but it was just bacon. But I uh, now now that I see last week when we saw this rollout of X branding, I thought this is so haphazard. It's a domain redirect. They've changed the logo on Twitter. The mobile app hasn't been changed. You know, none of this other stuff has been changed. This is just a marketing thing. I'm not so sure now. I'm not so sure because. Uh, it's uh, definitely rolled out. You got that big stupid sign on top of the building. They they struck a Not private anymore. deal with Apple. Oh, really? They took the sign down? Yeah, they had to. <laughs> they struck a private deal with Apple. So that way they could get uh, their app just labeled X, which otherwise requires two characters in the App Store. Uh, of course, they got a special deal. And Elon himself reiterated once again, it's going to be the everything platform. Just so bad. I am just... So bored with this, so over it. Yeah. What I think is worth talking about just briefly is how haphazard the implementation has been. Like, there's still Twitter branding and labeling all over the app, everywhere. This is the kind of rebranding that, like, a one, two man company does that has too many properties to update. So it takes them like mm -hmm. six months to roll out their branding, right? Not like one of the most talked about tech companies in the world which you would think they would do like a coordinated brand rollout. But I think this gives us some insight into the leadership because on its face, it sometimes seems so ridiculous. It almost seems like it has to be a joke. I think it is a joke. I mean, I, 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 I don't know. It's, it seems it's just wild to me that 
I mean, he really obviously loves this name. Like we said last week, he's done it before in the 90s, the X name. But it just seems like he's maybe chasing some youth. I liked the uh, Verge's art headline today. Elon Musk wants a second chance to fail at X. <laughs> That's exactly it. <laughs> Go for it, buddy. Yeah. Go for it. <laughs> Ask not what your podcast can boost for you. But what you can boost for your podcast. Yeah, Adversaries did. He came Adversary 17 came in with 50,000 sats, our baller this episode. Hey, rich he writes, just sending some love into Coder. Keep up the great episodes, gentlemen. Well, thank you. Really appreciate the ongoing support. Um, we are trying to get to 200,000 sats this episode. I'll tell you if we made it there or not. But your baller boost definitely Jeff comes in, Torch comes in with 25,000 sats and just says beer, popcorn, and love. B-O-O-S-T. I agree. It makes me want some popcorn right now. Kraftnicks came in again with a row of McDucks with no message. Things are looking up for old McDuck. Thanks, Kraftnicks. Nice to see you again. And Sir Alex Gates, the podcasting consultant, the podcasting 2.0 consultant, came in with 20,000 sats. Coming in hot with the boost. He says what Elon knows how to do is get government grant money. And he knows about CBDCs. There's a decent amount of encryption, though, for emails. We talked about this. If you have appropriate classifications and categorization levels in regards to the military domain. But mostly, they're just relying on clearance and lawyers. <laughs> yeah. I think the situation is improving with more agencies rolling out standards now, though, like PIV and CACSs. Now, how about 20 years ago? Yeah. I know. But it just seems like you just figure that out before you start rolling out email. A Hodigan comes in. With 20,000 sats. Yeah, I like this one. Yes, X11's X logo. Good spot, guys. Yeah, isn't it ridiculous? I went yeah. and looked up on Google Images and did a comparison. That was another reason I thought maybe he was a troll. Just so wild. It's so wild. so weird. It's so weird. And to give up the branding around tweets. I mean, just so crazy. Go do the Alphabet thing, but at least Google knew to keep the Google name. They created a stupid parent company named Alphabet, which is ridiculous. But. Even Google knew not to kill the Google name. Yeah. Just, yeah. Anyways, moving on. Dirty Jersey Whore comes in. Heyo, with 19,760 sats. There's coffee in that nebula. Nice. New listener here. I got it. I got here via Dave Jones from Podcasting 2.0. Quick question. Oh, boy. As someone wanting to learn Linux, which distribution should I start with? I'm planning to wipe an old HP laptop and start there. Y'all be good. Oh, the which distro to start with? Tell me if I'm crazy, Mike, but I think it's either Ubuntu, straight up Ubuntu, or Fedora, depending on which like direction in the industry you kind of want to go. Even though my distro preferences pop, I would I would say Ubuntu because it's probably the most common distro you're going to see, and certainly when you go to work on servers. Yeah, if you want to take what you're doing and say put it up on a VPS. Every VPS is going to offer Ubuntu LTS. And there's tons of support, right? Yes. The community support is great. So I, The reason why I like Fedora as a recommendation is because it's sort of fresh. Ubuntu has some Debian legacy that comes from the way we used to do things. And Fedora has managed to keep things much more modern. And so it's sort of how we do things in Linux today. Not that Ubuntu isn't completely, uh, but that I just feel like Fedora is a little bit cleaner, more recent implementation, a little more aggressive in that way. And so you can also find pretty good documentation over there. It's a nice, clean, minimum viable desktop you'll get with Fedora. Ubuntu, you're going to get something that 
has some preferences put into it, right? Some some Ubuntu styling. They have a team that puts it all together, pre-installs some extensions, and kind of creates an environment that they call the Ubuntu desktop environment for you. And it just kind of depends on which one appeals to you the most. And if you got any more questions, Dirty Jersey Whore, or if you just want to let us know how it's going, boost back in because I'd love to follow that journey. Shoham G comes in with 5,000 sats. Using Podverse. The U.S. has the worst internet because it has the most capitalism. Leeching off consumers is the easiest way to maximize profit for the minimum cost. In a way, it's similar to how Apple is forced to be the App Store mafia despite being wildly successful. There's never going to be a competitor App Store nor a competitor ISP. Hashtag Comrade Radio. My only criticism there, Shoham, is the way that these ISPs have manipulated through legislation, local representatives basically bought off local and federal government representatives. That's not capitalism. That's corruption. Well, it's just uh, keeping competitors out too, right? Like municipal and Google Wi-Fi. True capitalism would have a free market where competitors could compete freely. We have put our hands very firmly on that scale. We have a very distorted system now. Yeah, in favor of the incumbent. Very much so because the incumbent pays the politician. I mean, it's really who has representation, right? That's right. Yeah. All right. So did we make it to our goal of 200,000 sats? No, we got close though. So cool, right there. We had seven total boosters, eight boosts, because we had a couple extra, or one extra in there. So thank you, everybody. Seven total boosters this week. And we got 161,982 sats. I hoard that which your kind comes. So I'm going to keep the 200,000 goal. I'd love to see if we could get there next week. Ultimately, we would get it up from there to try to replace one of the sponsors. But we are taking baby steps because it is a brand new system. Thank you, everybody who does boost in. If you'd like to boost, get Albie.com. Top it off with the Cash App or directly inside Albie, and then head on over to the Podcast Index and boost in, or hey, get a new podcast app, a new podcastapps.com. And a big, big shout out to our members, coderqa.co, who go over there and they prefer to just do it on the easy way monthly, put the credit card in, they support the show. And of course, over jupiter.party, you can support the entire network and set your own price and get all the shows ad free. Jupiter.party. It is a party, right? Anywhere you want to send it people to a party, party this week? Uh, go to alice.dev if you want to get that sweet, sweet sale on some automation software before prices go up. Heck, yeah, man. And, uh, yeah, that's it. I, I don't really am not doing the Twitter recently, so maybe check out dominicm.com if I ever get around to another post. Whoa, what an idea. Going back and posting on your own blog. I know, right? I should have thought of that. Huh. I've been playing around with Noster. What am I doing? She just started a blog again. That's how it all started. Geosites. It turns out I can't write. That's what it is. I can't write. That's that's right. I bad spell it. Of course, there's Grammarly now. All right. Links to what we talked about today at coder.show slash 529. Our contact form is over there. We'd love to get your emails into the show. And of course, you can find the subscribe page as well. So that way you get the show when it comes out. We do it live now on Tuesdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern over at jblive.tv. Then it generally comes out Wednesday morning in the RSS feed. Thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of the Coda Radio Program. See you right back here next week.